Ag State of Mind, episode 31. Welcome to Ag State of Mind, a podcast that examines the stresses affecting producers of agriculture and how to alleviate these stresses and improve farmers' lives. In this podcast, we discuss openly the mental health crisis that is occurring in the agricultural community and what we can do to help turn it around. Now here's your host, Jason Meadows. episode of the Ag State of Mind podcast, a member of the Global Ag Network. I'm your host, Jason Meadows, and today on the show, we continue talking about the dairy industry and how it's been affected, uh, not only by COVID-19, but by just the last several years in general. They've had taken some hard hits, like we talked about last week with Tara, the New Mexico milkmaid, and uh, my friend Brittany Olson today on the show is, she's kind of singing the same song talking about how hard it's been in the dairy industry and we get into talking about her own battle with depression and anxiety um, kind of her backstory and you know how she has been able to kind of be an advocate for people who suffer for that in this climate. Brittany is a fifth generation Wisconsin dairy farmer along with her husband Sam. Um, sounds like they you know have a very passionate operation. She also does photography and makes lotion and soap and just sounds like she's really trying to diversify things and trying to you know keep it the right way. So uh, I'm very glad and happy to know Brittany. Um, before we get started today though I do want to I promised a few episodes ago that we would be reading some reviews online because we want to give everybody an incentive to go out and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever. And uh, this week we are going to read a, our first review online. And that is uh, from my friend, I believe this is from my friend Trevor Williams, TW Lawyer FL. He is the host of the Farm Traveler podcast, and I was a guest on there a few weeks ago. If you haven't yet, go check out Trevor's podcast. Really cool about connecting the producers and the consumers. Uh, just a great podcast. The title of this is Great Show with a Great Content. Jason's show is much needed today, and he does a great job interviewing guests and talking about mental health and agriculture. Great show. So thank you for those kind words, Trevor. Um, I appreciate your friendship and the exposure that your show got me. Um, so I encourage everyone else to do the same. Go go give us a review, hopefully a five-star review. Um, we will greatly appreciate it. I also want to make everybody aware that this coming week, I will be releasing my second bonus episode on Friday. It will be titled Bonus Episode 2. It's with actually some family members of mine, Ryan and Abby Huken. They have Excelsior Chiropractic in Chesterfield, Missouri. We, we want to talk about, and why I'm doing it as a bonus episode is it's kind of outside the normal things that we're going to be talking about. Uh, we are going to be talking about mental health, but you know, just from a general, more broader sense, how chiropractic care can help us with our mental health. So I'm really excited that because it's going to be a little bit on the more medical side of things, but uh, some really, really good information. And what I think kind of think is going to be great about it is chiropractors are pretty accessible and, you know, that's something that we haven't been talking about, how chiropractors uh, can help with our mental health. And it seems like chiropractors are pretty accessible in small town rural America. So uh, that's, I think that's pretty encouraging. So I'm really happy to talk to them because Ryan and Abby are a couple of great, great people. Not just saying that because they're my family. Um, just really excited to talk to them. So, all right, that's it. Uh, we are done with taking care of business and we will go get into our episode with Brittany Olson. All right, Brittany, thanks for coming on today. How are you? 
I'm good, Jason. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course. You know, we were talking before we recorded. We have interacted a lot online and through Facebook and Twitter, but uh, it's the first time I think we've actually had a real life conversation. And uh, it's been it's been really cool to get to know you a little bit. I agree. I really do. <laughs> so... <laughs> I think, I'm not exactly sure how our paths crossed. I'm not sure if it was through Randy Roker or Jeff Ditzenberger, you know, some of you badgers up there. Um, but somehow our paths crossed and we kind of, sh- we obviously share agriculture and we share our passion and our advocacy for mental health. And uh, I'd just like to get everyone to kind of get your story, who you are, where you're from, and we'll go from there. So... As Jason might have mentioned earlier, I am Brittany Olson. I am a fifth generation dairy farmer in the northwestern part of Wisconsin. My husband, Sam, and I milk about 45 cows on his family farm, and we're transitioning into ownership in these very uncertain and trying times. And I'm also a writer. I do a lot of freelance writing, and I'm a photographer. And in my maybe two hours of spare time a week, I make lotion from our milk and that, that's been a pretty interesting side hustle in addition to writing and photography. I've been, oh, go ahead. I'm no, no, go ahead. You're fine. So I've been advocating for mental health for about four and a half, five years now. So what, 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 how did you get started and like started talking about mental health? What, what kind of sparked that? So when I was in fourth grade, my parents had a really, really, really nasty divorce. Mm -hmm. And my mom was abusive. And before my dad got primary custody, there was, there was about three months during that summer where I was living with my mom. And she was horrible. And her new boyfriend was absolutely horrible, too. We had just gotten back from a family vacation out to Yellowstone. And The day after we got back, she said, hey, why don't we go down to the park and meet your friends? Well, we hopped in the car with her, and we never went to the park that night. And my dad got served at midnight that night with a restraining order and divorce papers. And for the next three weeks, he had absolutely no idea where he was. And so that night, my mom took us to a hotel and introduced us to her boyfriend and said, yeah, he's your new dad. Your dad doesn't love you anymore. Oh, geez. Yeah. And there was some mental and physical abuse that followed. And there was some abuse that in the years leading up to that. And I got the brunt of it because I'm, I'm the most like my dad compared uh-huh. to my sister. And my uh-huh. mom didn't like that. So my dad finally got primary custody three months into the divorce proceedings, which was an absolute game changer for all of us. But I remember when, before my dad got custody, those weekends that we would go to visit, I would start crying and panicking and hyperventilating on Saturday night, knowing that I had to go back with my mom the next day. Oh, gosh. And I think that's what kick-started this lifelong battle with anxiety and depression that I still deal with to this day. Yeah, I mean, it's those kind of things, they don't, and how old were you when this happened? I was nine. Yeah. I mean, yeah, a hundred percent. Those are when those, I I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist, obviously not a psychologist, but from what I know about, just from what the information I've gathered, so many of the things that we deal with in our adult years, 
they go back to those formative years in childhood and, you know, you start to be told things or you start to believe things about yourself and the older you get, the harder it is to get out of those ruts. Oh, for sure. And I was at that age where I knew 100% what was going on, but I wasn't old enough to do anything about it. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tough place to be in because, you know, what do you, you're, you know, you're 9, 10, 11, 12 years old and, you know, you know, something's wrong, but really what are you going to do about it? You know, the, it's, it, it's a, it's a impossible situation to be in. I'm just glad that my sister and I had a guardian ad litem that actually listened to us and advocated for us when we told her that we wanted to live with our dad. So how long, so you ended up being with your dad though? Yep. What, when did that happen? So that was, that would have been the fall of 2003. It was actually the second day of the school year when, when the custody hearing was going on and I remember watching the clock tick toward the end of the school day and just knowing that whatever parent was standing at the school door to pick us up was kind of going to dictate the rest of my childhood. Oh, wow. Was that like the longest day of school ever or the shortest? It was very long and very short at the same time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. And I walked out to my cubby and grabbed my stuff and there was my dad with a dress shirt and a tie and smiling and two thumbs up. Oh, wow. Wow. That's so like, you don't I mean, this is obviously I don't know anything, anything about the law or legal proceedings or family law or anything like that. But it's very difficult for a father to get custody, or at least it, at least it was I think it's a little bit easier today. But I, if then it was, you know, it was dang near impossible. So you know, that was a, that was a blessing for you and your sister for sure. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that I would have ended up where I am today if that didn't happen. Yeah, no, there's no way. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. So, I mean, that was one of those. And how old were you at the time? Nine. You were, that was what happens when you were nine. Okay. Just started fourth grade. Okay. Okay. Wow. You're a lot younger than me. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> feel younger i just threw my back out last oh yeah oh it's okay you know i mean once yeah once once the back starts to go that's like it's all downhill from there (laughs) or uphill maybe (laughs) so we talk a lot and you write about and you were involved you know obviously you have had your own issues with anxiety and your own you know in your own trials and you've seen it in your family life and but now as a as a generational farmer as a generational dairy farmer and working growing up in this industry how have you seen that affect the industry the the mental health the people dealing with all of these especially in the dairy industry like i said there's just you guys have it um extremely tough right now and have been for a few years how have you seen that affect not only your operation but the operation of your colleagues and the people you know so that's a really good question because i think it affects every operation differently Mm -hmm. but we're not as willing to talk about it it's only been within the last few years that the conversation about mental health in agriculture and especially dairy has really snowballed into something bigger yeah I mean yeah it's it seems like it's kind of in its infancy and 
you know, the problem isn't in its infancy, but the the actual activism and advocacy is something that I feel like is is just now starting to come to the forefront. And with all the things that are happening with COVID-19 and um, all the issues that it's affecting all throughout agriculture, I mean, it's just we were having a tough enough time as it was. And then this got thrown into our face and um, it just brings about a whole new set of problems. And I think we are people who are doing the work now are kind of got a kind of got their work cut out for them. Mm hmm. And like you said, I do think this advocacy is in its infancy, and it just started learning to walk when COVID-19 came about and really pummeled ag markets and threw a lot of added uncertainty into our lives that we certainly didn't need. And all of a sudden, I think we need this advocacy to run. Yeah, yeah, we do. And I'm not sure like how you go right from a walk to a sprint. But um, I think getting more and more people to talk about it and getting more people involved is is the key. And I, I don't know, I'm not sure how we do that other than just keep ta- making the talk ourselves, you know, keep having conversations like this one. I think that's what we need to do is we need to keep on keeping on. When I first started advocating for mental health, it was in the fall of 2015. So it would have been my senior year of college. Uh And it was right before our State Farm Bureau annual meeting when I wrote my first blog about mental health for Wisconsin Farm Bureau. And I talked a lot about how I had a panic attack during my internship in the office in front of God and everybody. And that was was vulnerable for me. But at the same time, I've always been pretty open about my problems just to help other people feel less alone. And I don't, I lost track of how many people came up to me at the State Farm Bureau annual meeting a couple weeks later and said, thank you for writing that. I thought I was the only one. Yeah, you get really like, when you put yourself out there, you start to, you know, you do, you think it's scary at first and you start to kind of think that, you know, man, I'm, am I the only one who thinks like this way? But as soon as you start putting yourself out there, you there's hordes of people that start coming to you and like, yeah, I know how you feel. And that's comforting for yourself. It makes it easier for you to go out and keep telling your story. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I wonder if it hasn't made me feel more, more alone personally. Really? Really, yes. Why? Because I've, like I mentioned, I've always been open about, you know, my mental struggles and farm struggles. And I kind of realized that people judge you for being open about things like that, because, Mm. you know, we all have things like animals that get that get sick and die. But a couple of winters ago, we had a lot of losses to pretty freak accidents that were out of our control. And I know every farmer deals with it, but not every farmer talks about it. Sure. And I saw a comment from a producer in our region that said that, oh, when, when people are open about losses and it seems like it happens a lot, it makes me wonder if something else isn't going on up there. Mm, mm. And that bothered me. Yeah. That really bothered uh-huh. me because it's like, so you would rather sit back and judge this person than ask if they need help. Yeah, no, I get that. I, yeah, that's, that's honestly a, angle of it I've never really looked at because because yeah you start sharing and you know you've got all these people who like oh yeah I get that I get that but it, then it takes that one person who say 
well, what, maybe there's something else going on. Maybe that's not really the problem. And then you're like, like blind, like deer in the headlights, like, oh wow. And then it like makes you question every single thing that you've done and like make you go, go back and revisit every word you've said and everything you've shared and, you know, try to break that down. And then obviously makes your anxiety worse. And then you are less likely so to, to share. So yeah, I get that. I've never really even kind of thought of it that way, but yeah, no, I, I totally get that. You know, it's, it's something when advocacy it shouldn't put you under a greater microscope, but it has this way of doing that. And when people start to express skepticism toward your motives or farming practices or anything like that, it makes you question that, am I really doing the right thing by being open about this? Am I doing the right thing by helping other people? Hmm. And that, I think when you come to a crossroads like that, you need to buckle down and work even harder on whatever kind of advocacy you're doing because for every one critic you have you have at least 10 supporters yeah no and that's a hundred percent and and the supporters aren't always going to come out and be like blatantly i support you like but they're there and it's not always easy, especially when a lot of your advocacy is online and in written form. It's not always easy to see that, but it's there nonetheless. And there's people who listen. There's people who read that. They may not come out and 100% say it because maybe they're not 100% comfortable with saying it themselves. But you're helping them regardless of if they openly express that. Right. And... Anyway, it's just really frustrating when things like that happen because even though you know deep down you're doing the right thing, it makes you second guess yourself that much harder when it's coming from a peer. Now, I'm I'm curious. This makes the way you talk, it seems like you've had ex- kind of extensive experience. Have there been people who have questioned your motives or questioned your intentions behind your advocacy? There've been a couple. Really? Mhm. See, I have and I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate in that nobody out loud has ever said anything like that to me. So uh, I feel good, but I know that there probably will come a point to where someone does. And uh, to me, I don't feel like the cyclical nature of agriculture is what causes the depression. I mean, we're all involved. We know, we know going into this. I mean, you're, you're fifth generation. I'm really third generation like we know what's going to go on i mean hell my dad owned a sale barn he know he he knew what was what to expect he knew the price of the highs and lows so i don't think the cyclical nature of agriculture is what causes the depression and in fact i think when th- things are at their low i think that's almost sometimes easier because and i was talking about this with somebody previously i it escapes me who i was talking with this about but when things are at their low we can kind of come together and struggle together and kind of commiserate and kind of bond over that sometimes i think when things are high and things are really good and maybe you don't feel like you're doing as well and seeing everybody else do well i think that is actually when it's, it's hardest um, that's just me but uh, i mean i think there's i think there's a lot of truth in that so there is too for sure But I also think that, you know, prolonged low prices like we've seen in the dairy sector can be the trigger or tipping point into someone that's been experiencing chronic stress. And it's kind of that catalyst to for them to become anxious or depressed. I mean, for sure, the the low prices, obviously that 
I mean, I know for sure that it, it does cause stress, but I mean, it's not the, it's not, I don't think it's the only thing because there's so many factors at play here that that's just only part of it. Oh, for sure. Like you said, there's financial factors. Um, family history plays a role too, especially in my family. My, my dad gets panic attacks. My sister gets panic attacks and she's also bipolar. Um, depression and anxiety run on both sides of my family. And in fact, my dad used to tell me the story about my grandpa, who was a devout Catholic. Mm-hmm. And he, he was on the board of trustees and leadership teams and things like that. And he used to sign up to distribute communion quite a bit. But the thought of being in front of all those people would send him in into, you know, basically hyperventilating into a paper bag on the porch steps before mass that morning. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah. So, I mean, and that's another thing. People don't like understand that there is a physiological component and a genetic component to this kind of, I mean, it's just like heart disease. It's just, I mean, I, I talk about this often. It's just like, excuse me, any kind of other quote unquote disease state or, or health, health condition. I mean, it is so much of it is has to do with our chemical makeup. It has to do with genetics. And just like you said, um, your grandfather who, you know, would see as being a devout Catholic would see, you know, as a strong, you know, typical Midwestern man, he struggled with that. And if somebody like that can struggle with that, and I mean, it's, it's obvious that so many other people like him can. Exactly. But I think that my grandpa also provides a good example of that. How do I want to say this? You can have a mental illness, but your mental illness can't have you. Hmm. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I understand. The, one of the best things you can do when you're living with a mental illness is to live a very full life in spite of it. I see. So not letting it define you. Right. Yes. Yes, a hundred percent. And so, I wish I could remember. There was a, there's a way that this is illustrated um, that I heard it, and like, so you talk about depression, and you are not depressed. You have depression. I mean, it's not. So when you say like you're depressed, you let that define you. You don't say I am heart disease or I am diabetes. No, you have. Yeah, I am cancer. No, you have those things, but they do not define you. And that that's a good point because I haven't talked about this in a while. In fact, I've almost I'd almost forgotten that until you've said that. So thank you for that because that is that's a really important aspect is in, in thinking of I am anxious or I am depressed. No, you have anxiety, you have depression. Those are things you can overcome and still live a full life, like you said. Another thing that has frustrated me is when I've stepped into different circles with advocacy and people like to say that mental illness is all in your head and it's really not. It makes me chuckle (laughs) in a sad way. Yeah. No, yeah, I I agree with that, but I'd like to hear more. I'd like to hear you expound on that. Oh, that, oh, especially in more faith-based circles where, oh, just pray it away or if you're anxious, you, you don't have enough faith and that that really bothers me in so many ways. Yeah, no, I get that. Yeah, no, I understand that for sure. Go ahead. I mean, would you say that to someone in your church that was going through cancer or had heart disease or another chronic condition that was a little bit more visible and not as uncomfortable to talk about? Yeah, no, I mean, and I, I think that 
I think that being able to have that faith is important, but at the same time, being able to back it up with support too is, is just as important. And while Jeff Ditzenberger had mentioned on a, on a previous episode that mental illness can't be cured, but it can be managed. Uh-huh. Sometimes the answer to your prayers comes in a pill bottle. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is just because we are doing things the way of the world doesn't mean that it isn't, like you said, answer your prayers could be some sort of medicine or it could be um, even as easy as a counselor to talk to, or, you know, it, it, it comes in so many different forms. And I think it's important that people realize that. Oh, for sure. And it's going to take more and more people opening up and talking about it before the rest of whoever we interact with is comfortable accepting that it's okay to talk about what's bugging us inside and out. So how and do it's okay to talk about feelings? So how do we do that though? Like that's my biggest thing is I, I can talk about it all day long and I, I know I, I know me talking about it is, it is helpful and it gets other people, but like, how do we do that on a grand scale? Do you think in getting more and more people just, just keep on doing the work? Just keep on doing the work. And if you do come across a skeptic or someone that says, Oh, mental health, isn't that big of a deal. Um, I'm a big believer in the phrase, you don't have to attend every argument you're invited to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's true. But just keep plugging away and doing the work because you and I and every other mental health advocate out there is doing their best to do the right thing and telling their story. And one by one, those stories will shatter the stigma around mental illness in our industry. Yeah. Kind of just break it away a little bit. Maybe death by a thousand cuts type of thing. Just everybody doing a little bit of their part. And, you know, maybe one thing you say resonates with somebody else and gets them to talk and share their story. And then they maybe go ahead and help two people. And then those two people, and you know, kind of do that trickle-down effect. For sure. Just this one great big tapestry coming together one story at a time. Yeah, a hundred percent. And they don't, and not, and I think it's important to realize that not everybody suffers the same way. Not everybody talks about it the same way. Everybody has their own unique individual story because everybody has their own unique and individual circumstances. Exactly. Just like, just like every single one of our farms is different. Right. Yeah, of course. I mean, we all speak the language. We all have, we all understand the markets. We all understand that weather and trade and, we are affected, well, at least in the dairy and beef industry and you and I, I mean, and we have a, you know, we have a certain common ground, but at the same time, it's totally different too. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to, you know, the tragic things in life, like illnesses and accidents and deaths, we're pretty quick to show up to our neighbor's farm with a tractor and a combine and a gravity box and get the crop in. And we're pretty quick to also bring along a hot dish and a hug. But when it comes to the things that we struggle with that aren't, that go unseen, we have some trouble with that. Yeah, no, yeah. I, and I, I, we've talked about this before too. Like whenever there is a fire or a farmer gets cancer or has a heart attack and is laid up in the hospital and it's in the middle of harvest, and what do you see? You always see 
you know, lines of combines going to get his crop out of the field and, you know, people helping and, um, you know, people bringing dishes over. And that's the same kind of approach we have to get people to take towards um, making people comfortable with mental health, with, you know, stress, anxiety, depression, being able to manage that as a community, as a team, because we are, as agriculture, we are so good at managing things as a community. We just need to make this one of those things. We need to talk about it in the same sort of breath. Amen. You betcha. I agree. Awesome. (laughs) So I want to do, I do want to kind of break off here. And before we end, I want to talk about the situation that's currently happening in dairy. And as far as the demand is going, I wrote this little bit of blog yesterday about how the dairy, you know, all this dumping that's going on as a result of the loss in demand. Um, so I just want to get your take because I, I, I don't understand it. I mean, I understand it a little bit, but not from a firsthand experience. So I want to know how that is affecting you on your farm and the people around you. So I I read your blog yesterday and thank you for the shout out. I appreciate it. So we we have been fortunate to not have had to dump milk yet, but we are ready to cut production when we are asked by our co-op to do so. But what's really rattled our operation is watching milk futures for next month go from almost $18 a hundred weight to just under 12. So let me, if if I remember right, the break-even point is somewhere in that fifteen to sixteen dollar range. Is that right? Yep, and I I would be willing to bet that it's a little bit higher for smaller operations like ours because right. by nature we're a little less efficient. Right, you can't absorb a lot of the costs. Yeah. Right, and a lot of you know family labor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But to watch prices tumble like that because of such a sudden loss in demand is really, oh. There, there's so many unchristian, non-politically correct ways to put it, but it rattles you. It really does. Yeah, and we, and I, I don't know the answers, and I don't know the reasons why, but we're seeing the same sort of thing in the beef, and because you guys are seeing, you know. You've, you've been doing this with this for a long time, and we're seeing, like, what we're seeing on our end is the box beef at the at the tail end of the of the food, the supply chain, is they're at record prices. You know, it, the beef prices in the store are out of this world. But us, a cow-calf guy like me, I mean, we, we have been seeing losses at this end for several years now, and we're not getting any bit of that profit. And, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not an agronomy. I don't know much about agronomy. I'm not an agronomist. Um, I just know, I just look, I can, I can do simple math and say, hey, this doesn't make sense. So I, I kind of get where you're coming from. It's it, it's extremely frustrating to know that somebody's getting money but you're not. I mean, when you're when you're putting when you're putting in the sweat, you know, when you're putting in the time and effort, and it, it it's a really hard thing to sit back and watch. Right, and dairy production, um, the supply is so intricately dialed in with demand that it only takes a one percent swing in production in either direction to cause a major swing in farm gate prices so why like i and i guess i don't understand how because for me i feel like it's really simple for our you know 
Calf's born, raise a calf to 500, 600 pounds. We take it to market. We sell it. That's how we, as a cow-calf operation, make our money. So what I'm hearing people is there are people at one place. So you, the people that I guess you sell your milk to, they are the ones, or not you in particular, but on a certain operation, they are the ones that control obviously whether they buy your milk or not and they're the ones who are telling you to dump or to not is that or is that in 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 layman's terms kind of what's going on yep that that's the long and short of it basically but i think that you're we're seeing a lot more dairy farmers realizing the supply demand correlation with price that we have way too much milk on the market and that is what is causing such a sudden drop in price and we need to reduce our supply to better meet demand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing because there's so many people, there's so much that's out of your control. And for you guys, like it is really hard for you because for me, take for instance, if I want to insulate myself against some of these market um, unknowns, I can just go and I can sell, I can start feeding out some beef and selling a custom beef to some people that's really hard for you guys to do because your your milk like i wrote in that blog your milk doesn't really have a shelf life it it does but it's not very long and right we can't put the milk and jugs out to pasture for a few months and just ride it out it it doesn't work that way yeah it's i am seeing a few of my friends look even deeper into um on-farm processing but it's really expensive to get into for starters it's an added risk and you don't know that you're going that your market that you're looking for is going to be there when you get the facility up and running so yeah i mean it's hard to justify especially on like a smaller operation it's it's almost impossible to justify that that kind of capital and overhead cost And it's harder to justify the labor, too, especially when on a smaller operation like ours, it's all family labor, and we barely have enough hours in a day as it is just running a dairy farm, so how are we going to run a dairy plant on top of it? Yeah. It's all a balancing act, and I don't have the answers to it. Yeah. No, it's – yeah, I mean, there's a lot of unknowns, but I think it's important to help people understand – you know, just the in and out everyday stresses that go with whatever sector of agriculture you're in. And um, I hope for the best for you guys in the dairy industry. And, you know, it's an important part of our food supply chain. And, And for us, we have become very hyper aware of dairy in our house. Um, because, we were going, we, we saw there at the beginning of this, of this pandemic where, you know, there was no milk in the stores for a while. And we realized, Hey, we drink a lot of milk in this house. I have, there's, there's me and my wife, my wife actually doesn't drink. I started to encourage her to finally drink, uh, like lactate or lactose free milk. Um, because I want to support dairy farmers, but she's lactose intolerant. Um, but the rest of us, the me and my four boys, I mean, we drink like I mean, three or three, maybe sometimes four gallons of milk in a week. I mean, we just drink a ton of milk. And so we've been like it. 
there at the beginning, it was really like, wow, this is, you know, this could be, this could change us, you know, but thankfully now that we're seeing an increased supply in our local stores. So I'm thankful for that. So, but it, it really kind of made us stop and think like, Hey, this is, you know, this is affecting real people. This supply chain stopped. And, you know, there was somebody along the way everywhere that this, that, this is affecting this work stoppage is affecting in this supply chain and everything else. And it's, it's really hard. It's really, um, I think it really makes you, for me at least, or us, it really made me appreciate every little bit that went into that. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate hearing that, even though it was hard for you and scores of other people to find milk in the store. I know that with all the lines in the stores, you know, that are continuing, and shelves in the meat section basically being clear of everything but plant-based quote-unquote protein Uh i think that's where a lot of cow-calf producers and independent poultry and hog producers can step in and say hey you know skip those long lines at the grocery store and come get your meat from me you know yeah, I mean, because and then you know you you know where the supply is coming from always. You know, there's you know I don't I hope that there conti- like this doesn't continue. I hope that this you know comes back up. But it it would be nice to know that there is an alternative to you know having to wait in line and being limited on having the chance of being limited when you can know that there's somebody local that you can go and and, and find that from. And it's more than just somebody local too. It's a base, a family, a livelihood, and right relationship with that person. Yeah, build a, yeah, of course, yeah. So much of, and I think that's what maybe I didn't realize is so much of you know, especially when you deal with animals like like you and I do. You deal with cattle. Um, you go into it thinking that so much of the work is actually. Um, the relationship with you and the animals. And that's true to an extent, but so much of it is the relationship with you and other people who are involved in that, whether it be um, a veterinarian, whether it be the actual consumer or, you know, whoever else it may be, the, you know, uh, for you, the, the, the person that comes and picks up the milk. And for me, you know, going to the sale barn and dealing with the people at the sale barn, there's so much human to human interaction that I think that that's one part of it that I didn't realize until, I don't know, a couple years ago. And it's that human to human interaction that makes agriculture basically the last industry to operate on a, on an individual's good word and a handshake. And it is those intricate ties that bond us that we can use to our advantage when we're advocating for mental health or trying to sell our product. I, I just really wish there was a good way to do that with dairy. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, because there's so, like I said, it's so it's so hard for you guys to do that, and I, I it would it's going it'll take someone a lot smarter than me to figure that out, unfortunately. Um, so with a solution that works for farms of all sizes. Yeah, yeah, that's a yeah, that's a big thing because it's hard to find like that kind of model for someone like you who has a 45 cow dairy. You know that's really difficult, but make no mistake about it, you're no less important than someone that milks 10,000. I mean, everyone is just as, you know, your livelihood depends on that just as much as someone else's that works at a 10,000 dairy or 10,000 cow dairy. It's just as important. 
you know, I told my husband this morning in the barn when he said he was sick of the roller coaster ride that class three milk was taking on the CME that it, I said, don't even look at it. We have price coverage insurance. We should be okay. You know, okay is kind of a really broad generalization, but some mornings I wake up and I say, screw the CME. I'm starting my own creamery. And we live about two miles outside of a little town called Dallas mm -hmm. and Dallas has a brewery that was once a former creamery and the brewery is for sale. So, huh. Hey, there you go. Hey, maybe, maybe that, that would be, I mean, Hey, you've got to do what you got to do to survive. Right. Right. I just don't know where I'm going to cough up $350,000. Right. Yeah. That's the hard part. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brittany, I really appreciate you talking to me tonight. It was really good to be able to kind of put a voice with this, these online conversations that you and I have had, because we've had some really great and meaningful conversations and I really appreciate um, your advocacy and I feel like I can count you as a friend and I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. I feel the exact same way about you and I'm glad to know you and the world is better, a, a much better place with you in it. Well, thank you. The same for you. So if people want to reach out to you, where is the best way for them to get in contact with you? So I'm on Twitter. My handle is um, Farmer and Flannel and you can friend me on Facebook at Brittany Olson. It, my profile picture is me and my husband on our wedding day in a field. Very cool. Yeah. Just make sure that you send me a private message first because there aren't many randos I accept friend requests from. Yeah. And there's reason for that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and do you still write a blog? Did you write for Hordes at one point? I was their intern. Oh, okay. Okay. Do you not do that anymore? I don't. Um, oh. I do have, I have done some writing for Progressive Dairymen. Oh, that's where it was. Okay. Okay. Well, yep. Very, very cool. Well, I will, you know, I'll link your, uh, I'll link your Twitter and your Facebook in the show notes of this episode. And so people can get in contact with you if, if they want to. All right. I'll, I'll send you some links to my photography and farm pages as well on Facebook. Cool. Very cool. And I'll, I'll link, link whatever you want me to. All right. Thank you, Jason. Yep. I really appreciate this opportunity. Oh, cool. Thanks for being on again. All right. Have a good night. You too. Thanks for listening to Ag State of Mind. We hope this episode has encouraged you. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Ag State of Mind. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify so you never miss an episode. See you next week.